in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 12. And this will be easy to find since it is the last uh, book in the Bible. Uh, I'm glad that it's there because even if you don't understand every aspect of it, the clear message is uh, when all is said and done, we win. And the victory that has already been purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we enter into the fullness of that. And so... Um, uh, Pastor Garrett uh, told me that uh, this was just like riding a bike um, because I have been trying to uh, progress in a writing project. Uh, I haven't uh, been preaching as much and so I'm making a little adjustment uh, that we're going to do both now that there's enough traction, etc. And uh, I thought that uh, today would be a perfect opportunity. Revelation chapter 12, and we're going to read in a moment uh, those verses 1 through 17. By now, unless you have been off-planet somewhere, uh, you are aware of the events that occurred on the morning of October 7th, 2022. It was the final day of uh, the Jewish holiday, the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, without going into background, it would be like one of the major U.S. holidays, uh, Thanksgiving or something like that. But that fateful morning, the news that a highly coordinated and calculated terrorist attack was carried out by the group Hamas in southern Israel, resulting in the death of some 1,400 uh, people, primarily uh, citizens from the elderly down to infants. There were some soldiers, but primarily these were civilians. And then uh, coupled with that was the taking of over 200 hostages, uh, not just Israeli, but people from all over the world. The irony is that one of the focal points of this terrorist attack was at a music festival uh, celebrating peace. And it was the 
deadliest attack of Jews since the Holocaust. Uh, let that sink in because I think we need a little perspective. We're talking about a tiny country, nine million people. If you compare it to the 340 million people that reside in America, it would be then the equivalent of 40,000 Americans dying in a terrorist attack. It's been called Israel's 9-11 or Israel's Pearl Harbor. And uh, in uh, reading and, and in preparation, the sheer uh, barbarism and savagery of this attack, it was so uh, fierce, so horrific that, you know, grown people that were shown uh, some of the body cam footage that these terrorists uh, with their GoPros uh, filmed, uh, uh, grown people would break down under the sheer weight of the evil that they witnessed. And so for the first time in 50 years, Israel is officially at war with the stated goal of uh, we're going to do away with Hamas and that uh, influence. Uh, and uh, it unfortunately uh, brought uh, to an end uh, the so-called two-state solution. It's very hard to have peace when one of the parties is uh, committed and then in their charter, uh, your uh, eradication is the goal. Very hard to have uh, peace in that kind of uh, situation. And once again, the uh, fueling of end time speculation and a focus on uh, Bible prophecy and its role and its importance. But this morning as we read this scripture, what is shocking but not surprising? This is a phrase I use a lot that I'm shocked but I'm not surprised is and has been the displays and the expressions of anti-Semitism that were lying right beneath the surface and simply requiring a catalyst for a full-blown expression and uh, there have been many, whether it is uh, the taking over of the iconic Sydney Opera House uh, by protesters who were chanting, gas the Jews. 
Just think about that. Or whether the rallies and the protests in major cities across Europe and in the United States, the despicable moral cowardice that begin to show up in college campuses across America from, you know, Arizona State to Harvard University and uh, people unwilling to condemn or speak against the atrocities that had occurred. If you want any evidence how that academia has completely failed our nation, just look at that and uh, realize that this is uh, the fruit of uh, uh, years of indoctrination as opposed to education. Uh, it's the fruit of failed uh, immigration policies. Uh, and again, shocked but not surprised, the same destructive myths and misinformation that is regurgitated, how that Israel is an occupying nation. They are the oppressors in this uh, struggle and the colonial, you know, their uh, colonialization uh, of uh, that, uh, uh, quote, Palestinian land, all of that uh, has been very much uh, dominating the news. But what I want to point out this morning and uh, look at with you in the Scripture is that this attempt at uh, moral equivalency uh, in a response uh, like this, that the hatred towards Israel is not political. It is deeply and profoundly spiritual and religious. You uh, are going to leave this morning with that understanding and that picture, and that as we are assembled, in order to think and to live biblically, we have to pull back the curtain on uh, these events uh, and uh, answer the question of why we stand with uh, Israel, why we need to express uh, solidarity. Uh, it has been uh, very interesting to see the coalition of voices, groups that, you know, are uh, disparate uh, uh, positions and purposes, uh, but unified in their uh, response uh, is why are we called to express solidarity? That doesn't mean that 
We're saying everything done by the Israeli government is perfect in its entirety. But why do we stand with unwavering solidarity? There is a biblical uh, logic and truth that must penetrate our thinking and our understanding I apologize, my title sounds like clickbait for YouTube, but I have called this Hamas, the end times, and the dragon's fury. And so, Revelation 12, 1 through 17, will be on the screen. Then I witnessed in heaven... An event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, with seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son who is to rule all nations with an iron rod. And her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place to care for her for 1260 days. Then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. And the dragon lost the battle, and he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, the ancient serpent, called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, it has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens rejoice. But terror will come on the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger 
knowing that he has a little time. When the dragon realized he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But she was given two wings like those of a great eagle so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. There she would be cared for and protected from the dragon for a time, times, and a half a time. Then the dragon tried to drown the woman with the flood of water that flowed from his mouth. But the earth helped her by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that gushed out from the mouth of the dragon. Verse 17, and the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children, all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. I want to talk to you, first of all, about the cosmic struggle. Because a casual reading of this passage, uh, you know, presents us with an unexpected context in verse 7 and 8, then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle. He and his angels were forced out of heaven. Now, you know, lots of us have thought about heaven. Much has been written uh, about uh, heaven, uh, and I would say that the majority, when we think of heaven, there is a myriad of images uh, that come to mind. Our eternal rest, uh, uh, our eternal reward, uh, the promise of eternal reunion, uh, the rejoicing uh, that is present uh, and when we think of heaven, one of the last things that we call to mind would be the imagery of a war zone. And yet here the scripture says uh, there was war in heaven. And we have a prophetic reference and symbolism to the rebellion of Lucifer uh, Isaiah 14, 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning, you have been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest uh, heavens and be like the most high. Instead, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depths. And Isaiah is recording this reference 
to Lucifer's rebellion and the instigation of an age-old cosmic struggle. And the way it begins in Revelation 12 is uh, John is saying, I want to show you uh, and point out a great sign. The word speaks about a miracle that has a spiritual lesson uh, or purpose attached to it. The NLT says an event of great uh, significance, uh, and I think about this, and uh, uh, I'm, you know, I can't speak for everyone, but it's interesting how that all of the great stories of history, some of the epic tales that have been popular from generation to generation. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, we could talk about the Lord of the Rings. We could even throw Star Wars into this or the Chronicles of Narnia. All of these capture in part uh, this and mirror this cosmic struggle between good and evil that has existed since the beginning of time. And the reality is that this battle between good and evil runs right through every human heart. You and I are part of this struggle because it takes place uh, in our own hearts uh, and in our own lives. Uh, and uh, the combatants in this struggle are clearly identified. And there are three. Verse 1. A woman clothed with the sun, the moon beneath her feet, uh, having a crown of 12 stars on her head, uh, who is pregnant, uh, who is the earthly vessel responsible for birthing eternity and the great purposes of God. Here is a symbolic reference to the nation of Israel and the offspring of Abraham. The other combatant, verse 3, another sign or significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns with seven crowns on his head and his tail swept one-third of the stars in the sky and he threw them to the earth and there's great specificity here so that there's no confusion. Verse 9 identifies uh, this wonder, this sign. It says this great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one who uh, deceives uh, the whole world was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. The third uh, combatant or individual, uh, and really everything revolves around him, 
is the man-child who was to be born. Verse 5, she gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod, and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. Every Christmas, we celebrate uh, this event, uh, the promise uh, of Jesus Christ, uh, God's Messiah, Isaiah 9, 6, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. And so here is a prophecy about the first coming of Jesus Christ uh, there in Isaiah 9. Here in Revelation 12 uh, is a reference to his second uh, coming. And as we look at this cosmic struggle, I want you to catch uh, this this morning. What animates this whole story is the intense hatred that is behind uh, all of these events. There's something clearly diabolical that John the Revelator uh, is uh, referring to, beginning in verse 4, where this dragon has taken up uh, an intimidating posture it says he stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. You can't miss the murderous intent that was animating the dragon. We go down to verse 17. And the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children, all who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. So why do I point this out this morning? Because we're not talking about politics. We're talking about something deeply spiritual. A cosmic struggle, an eternal hatred that has been at work, and the real source of anti Semitism is not, you know, whether you're on the right or on the left or who you believe to be at fault in current events. The real source here of anti-Semitism and why it continues to this very day is the spiritual roots that are identified. 
man named A.W. Sack wrote these words, next to the survival of the Jews, the most baffling historical phenomenon is the hatred which he has repeatedly encountered among the nations of the earth. This hostility is to the Jews, which goes under the name of anti-Semitism, is as old as Jewish existence. It is endemic, like many contagious diseases. It is always with us to some degree, but under certain circumstances, it assumes epidemic proportions and characteristics. It is prevalent wherever Jews reside in sufficiently large numbers to make their neighbors aware of their presence. The growth of anti-Semitism, Chain Weissman declares, is proportionate to the number of Jews per square kilometer. We carry the germs of anti-Semitism in our knapsack on our backs. In other words, this has always existed. This is a hatred unlike any other that lies right beneath the surface and all it takes is certain events, certain catalysts, to bring it to the forefront uh, again and again and again, that there's something woven into the fabric of the world mind by, yeah, I'll be fine. When you see me, you know, collapse, you'll know I have a problem. (laughs) But until then, we're powering on. There's something woven into the world mind by the deceiver himself, that if Satan is successful in destroying the Jews, then the plan of God for the world can be thwarted and overthrown. This is what accounts for the serpent's presence in the Garden of Eden, where we read about the fall of humanity, Adam, who embraced the lie of autonomy and self-identification, you shall be as God's uh, determining good and evil, uh, As that lie was embraced, then all of recorded history is about the resultant consequences. And this is why we need to go back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, which is connected to our text in Revelation 12. So beginning to end, It says, then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility 
between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So here is the first prophecy, God speaking this about the man-child that was to be born in Revelation chapter 12, this animosity, this hostility, I'm going to place hostility between you and the woman, between her seed, singular, and your. That this ancient uh, hostility can be traced right back to the beginning. And in the simplest terms, the bottom line is what God loves, Satan hates. God loves humanity, Satan hates humanity. And comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. What God builds, Satan seeks to destroy. What God creates, uh, Satan counterfeits. And hence, what we're looking at is the dragon's fury that from the very beginning, the battle has been between good and evil, but it has been a battle specifically revolving around the seed. Because the seed of the woman is going to crush your head and you will strike his heel. So the battle for the seed to prevent that from ever being realized, to sidetrack it, to make it impossible to come to pass. Now, I don't have time because we're talking about, we're looking at a sweeping panorama this morning to go into every aspect. But let me point out the times of Noah. And this is important because Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day, that in the time preceding the coming of the Lord, there are lessons, there are parallels from Noah's day that we can learn and we can apply. Genesis 6 Verses 11 through 13. Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world for everyone on earth was corrupt. So God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along with the earth. God said the earth had become corrupt and filled with violence. 
The Hebrew word there is the earth was filled with Hamas. You look it up. I know that the organization Hamas, Arabic for the Islamic resistance movement in Hebrew, the earth was corrupt and it was filled with lawlessness, with Hamas. That there was something so terrible, so evil, so corrupting that it brought about the judgment of the flood. And this word Hamas, as you study to violence, but it carries with it also the sense of lawlessness. Jesus said in the last days, because lawlessness abounds, the love of many will grow cold, that this Hamas contains an antichrist spirit. It's a word that can also mean malicious lying or a malicious witness. Deuteronomy 19.16, if a malicious witness or a Hamas comes forward and accuses someone of a crime. Can you say hospital in Gaza? Because within minutes of that hospital being damaged, and it wasn't, it actually was something in the parking lot that had shrapnel and other things, but immediately the malicious witness went around the world, picked up by members of the United States House of Congress, and without any kind of vetting or verification, uh, repeated that lie, that malicious uh, witness, that Hamas, And you thought the Bible was just this old, uh, irrelevant religious book. So let me look secondly at the earthly theater. So we're talking about a cosmic struggle. But there is an earthly theater attached to this. And this is a very clear emphasis in all of the text and verses. The great dragon was thrown down to the earth. In other words, the earthly theater. Verse 10, the accuser was thrown down to the earth. Uh, Verse 13, when the dragon realized he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman, the word there, Pursued means to prosecute or persecute, to pursue with repeated acts of enmity. All of these refer to an earthly sphere or theater. 
This is why the devil is referred to in the New Testament as the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. This eternal cosmic struggle has a very real earthly theater to it. Derek Prince, a number of years ago, wrote, the central theme of biblical prophecy as it is being unfolded in our time revolves around the land and the people of Israel. God is carrying out his predetermined plan to regather the Jewish people from their worldwide dispersion and restore them to their ancient homeland. So we've already established the combatants. Uh, there is the woman, a picture uh, of the nation of Israel. There is the dragon, the devil. And there is Jesus, uh, the man-child, the one who was born to redeem uh, the world from its sins and to really grasp uh, this idea, this truth of the earthly theater, we have to be acquainted at least to some degree with the central biblical narrative. And that narrative begins with a single man. That man's name is Abram, later changed to Abraham. Abram was a, a part of a pagan family living in the Ur of the Chaldeans, this valley in Mesopotamia. And Genesis 12, verse 1 uh, is uh, what's been called the Abrahamic Covenant, says the Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. And then verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your descendants. And Abram built an altar there and dedicated it to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, it is so important that we grasp this central narrative in the Bible. God shows uh, 
Abraham. Now, let me be clear. And Deuteronomy chapter 7 points this out. God did not choose Abram because he was inherently morally superior to anyone else. God chose Abram because it was his sovereign purpose to do so. Deuteronomy 7, you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on earth, the Lord God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other nations, for you are the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you and he was keeping the oath that he had sworn to your ancestors. Uh, that is why the Lord rescued you from the strong hand. Uh, and he goes on to talk about uh, their time in slavery in the land of Egypt. Uh, but God is saying, I didn't choose you because you were inherently better. I chose you because this was part of my plan. And this was part of my purpose. And this promise, this covenant, was made up of three things. These three things are still relevant uh, down to November 5th, 2023. The promises included the land, say the land, okay, of specific piece of real estate that God gave to Abram and his descendants. And I hold in my hand the title deed to that land that God gave to Abraham and to his descendants. This wasn't, in other words, the Jews were the indigenous people of that particular piece of land that God later calls my land. It included the land. Secondly, it included a lineage. Genesis 17, 7, I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And I will give the entire land of Canaan where you now live as a foreigner to you and your descendants. It will be their possession forever and I will be their God. So the three things, a land, a lineage, and the third is the Lord. And I will be their God. Those three things, land, lineage, and lordship, are what is behind much of the struggle in the earthly theater that we read about every day. Now, 
right here in the narrative is where they threw a monkey wrench into the works. See, God had promised Abraham land and a lineage. In other words, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless your descendants. Through them, I'm going to bless the entire world. The problem was Abraham and Sarah were barren, were childless. I think about the time of the original promise, Abram, I'll just say Abraham because God changed his name, you get it. Abraham was 86 years old. Sarah was slightly younger than that. They were childless. So it's pretty hard to have a lineage if you don't have any children, right? And so Sarah had the idea, which you and I can relate to because we're also very good at doing this ourselves, that she was going to help God out. God, I thank you. You're a good God. Your promises, all right, I believe them. I'm, I'm going to help you out. And Genesis 16, and see, the Scripture is so consistent, so honest. Now, Sarah, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him. But she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarah said to Abraham, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abraham agreed with Sarah's proposal. You know, I don't know if it took a lot of discernment to figure out that, wait a minute, bringing a second wife into the picture is not a great idea. And there are times where we need to listen to our wives. They can speak incredible wisdom, protect us in a myriad of ways. But Abraham, you shouldn't have listened. Because everything was fine. And this arrangement, Hagar becomes pregnant. And from the moment she was pregnant, it says she began to treat her mistress, Sarah, with contempt. And Sarah said to Abraham, may the wrong done to me be on you. I've been in that counseling session before. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the wrong done to me be on you is literally, may the Hamas 
done by you beyond me, beyond, uh, done to me beyond you. Abraham had invited Hamas into his house. And now in all of Abraham's homeland, Hamas is still an issue. That spiritual warfare was triggered when this covenant was made and uh, Ishmael is born, God gives indication about his character, Genesis 16, 12. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And Abraham, you know, furthered the whole mess by saying, Lord, let Ishmael live before you. I think it would be simplest for everyone involved if, you know what, your blessing, the lineage that you promised, come through Ishmael. End of story. But God says, no. God rejected that idea. And in Genesis 17, 19, God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. No, the blessing will not come through Ishmael. Because the son of promise is going to be a miracle child. By this time, Abraham is now 99 years old. Sarah's 90. In other words, they have come to a place where it's humanly impossible to conceive or to give birth. And this was uh, uh, a precursor of God's only son that was going to be born by a miracle, born of a virgin. My covenant is going to flow through the miracle offspring. So I'll take care of Ishmael. He has a place, but my covenant is going to be through Sarah and her son Isaac. And so what you have is in the beginning, you have Abraham, two wives, two sons, but one covenant. And the question still applies who gets the land? Who will be the blessed lineage? 
And from which side of the family will the Lord come from? And this schism between Isaac and Ishmael, then their descendants, Jacob and Esau, continue to this very day. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not just simply a passing title. God is making a statement about who he is and about his uh, eternal covenant uh, that is going to uh, make possible forgiveness and redemption from sin. This schism between the two lines, Ishmael and Isaac, is behind the present-day conflict. Obadiah, chapter 1. There's only one chapter in the whole book, so. But verse 10 is talking about the punishment on Edom. Edom is a descendant of Esau and says, because of the violence, the Hamas, you did to your brother Jacob, you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. Abraham, two wives, two sons, one covenant. And this conflict between Isaac and Ishmael, later Jacob and Esau, this Hamas, If you read Obadiah, the fundamental flaw is the sin of pride that fueled the hatred or the Hamas between Edom and his close relative, Jacob. And thinking what? He should be the master. That the covenant blessing and promises should come through him. Not God who said, my covenant will be with Sarah and her son Isaac. And that fundamental flaw is still the spirit of vehement hatred for the Jews. Anti-Semitism is wrapped up in this conflict, in this Hamas that has been generational. And it is, in one sense, a horrible tragedy. You talk about Gaza. In 2006, Israel ceded the area of Gaza to, they weren't Palestinians, there is no ethnicity called a Palestinian. They were Jordanian Arabs. And for the sake of peace, all right, and they forcibly 
removed 900 of their citizens from the region, said this is now under your control and your domain. From 2006 to the present day, Hamas has received billions of dollars worth of aid from the UN, from Iran, from its surrounding Arab neighbors who don't mind sending money, they just don't want any of them living in their country. Billions. Did that money go to building infrastructure within Gaza? Was it uh, uh, used for the prosperity and the well-being of, uh, of uh, the residents there? No, not at all. It was used instead for munitions to build uh, the uh, tunnel system that... Uh, is very much in play right now. Uh, it has been used to enrich the leadership of Hamas who live in Qatar in uh, just opulence. But the people of Gaza suffer horribly. This is the because at the core is this fundamental hatred. Zechariah 2.8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. That the perpetual hatred of Esau and his descendants the violence or the Hamas done, it, the imagery is like poking God in the eye continuously. And this is why today, and I'm passing over lots of other historical aspects of this, the chant, whether in the streets of London or what could actually be called London Stan or college campuses throughout America is from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. From the river to the sea. What's that talking about? The Jordan River, which is the eastern border to the Mediterranean Sea, the western border, and all the people, free Palestine. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, is an ancient call to exterminate the Jewish people. It isn't, let's live in peace, let's make compromise, 
figure out this unsolvable problem? No, the answer is just like the dragon ready to devour the male child instead has gone to pursue the woman and her offspring that earthly theater is being played out in the news right before our eyes. So let me close quickly and just talk about the urgency of the hour. I'm not claiming to be a prophet. A lot of the so-called prophecy experts usually end up being wrong anyhow. But when I first read of the events, the scope of what took place on October 7th, there was something in me that just said, this is not going to be business as usual. Before any plans had been devised, before any response, there was something in me that just felt this is not like anything that we've seen previously. Sydney, Australia. Chance gas the Jews. That hasn't been heard or uttered since Hitler's final solution and the Holocaust of World War II. What is that? How could that even be possible? Because that ancient hatred is always right beneath the surface. And what's so interesting is uh, I read a Pew Research study, and it actually was done before October 7th. And 39% of adults in the United States believe, according to this study, that we are living in the end times. Just a little suggestion, if you are looking for an open door to engage people in conversation and testimony, you know, ask them about, what do you think, you know, it feels like the end times, what, what do you think? Don't tell them what you think and preach, ask them what they think. People always want to talk about what they think anyhow. So you're just, you know, you're just, it's a perfect setup. 39% said we're living in the last days and how this is directly associated with the Bible's teaching that Jesus will return to earth. 
But what I want to leave you with is that all of these things, I had the sense, time will tell, I don't know where this is headed, is that this is not like anything previously. Is I believe that the stakes have been raised. You know, just when you thought the stakes couldn't be raised any higher, here they go. I, I, I've told a few people about this because just fair warning, God help us. Next year is an election year. You know, please, it's just, uh, but you know, why is it every four years, I, you know, I've, this is the most consequential election of my lifetime. And then I'm saying it four years later, you know, what, what are you doing? Are you engaging in hyperbole or what's, what's happening? No, the stakes just seem to be keep being raised. And we keep being pushed to, to the place that God, you're the only answer. And this is highlighted in our scripture, verse 12, the terror will come on the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has a little time. In other words, it's very clear, it's emphasized repeatedly that Everything, the ante, everything else has been raised because the devil knows he has a short time. Everything is amped up. The labor pains of the last days have been uh, ramped up. And this is always the purpose of prophecy. I want to end on this thought. Because the purpose of prophecy in the Bible is not that we would engage in endless, mindless speculation and, you know, coffee table chatter about this and about that. No, the purpose of prophecy is to remind us that God is in control of history. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And it is to remind us of our need for readiness and for preparedness. And it is to be an incentive that we engage ourselves as never before in God's purposes. That's what prophecy is all about. It is to remind us, uh, just like this woman was to give birth to a male child, the Messiah, she was to give birth to the eternal purposes of God, that they have an end, they have a conclusion. Prophecy is to remind us of this fact so that we live our lives individually and as a church in light of God's eternal purposes. Those are our marching orders. Time is short. Meaning what? There's an urgency. 
My little conviction is that every pastor, every 12 to 18 months uh, needs to preach on some aspect of Bible prophecy. Why? Because otherwise we lose sight of eternity. And it's to remind us and to keep uh, ever before our eyes uh, that Jesus is uh, coming again and that that urgency influence our lives and our decisions. And here is my conclusion. The time is short increases the dragon's fury. Well, the time is short should increase our spiritual fervor to be about our Father's business and to be prepared for whenever the trumpet sound and Jesus descend from heaven with a shout and we are caught up to meet him in the air, the time is short, increases the dragon's fury. It should increase, not decrease, our fervor, our fire for the things of God, his purposes, our loved ones, Uh, being saved and the like. That one spiritual force needs to be met with a greater spiritual force. God help us if we fall asleep. God help us uh, if we begin to get casual. My Lord delays his coming. I've been hearing this for decades. Uh, Lord help me to stir up the fire within and that that spiritual force of hell be combated by a greater spiritual force of revival in my own soul. And I thought about Revelation, or Romans rather, chapter 13. This is all the more urgent for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living because we belong to the day. We must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, clothe yourselves with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. In other words, he's saying, listen, there's an urgency. You and I cannot afford to slip into carnality. Jesus is coming. And all those deeds of darkness, 
Meaning, this is not a time to backslide. This is not a time to be lukewarm. But the mystery, there's an urgency. And you'd think it wouldn't be, but at the same time, you've got saints who are indulging in carnality, drunkenness and wild party, sexual promiscuity, fractured relationships. And it would be enough to discourage me. But it just tells me, wait a minute, this simply means the time is short. And I want to let this urgency impact me in a healthy way. And I want to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -mm -mm. Just like I got up this morning, you know, with the black pants and a white shirt. Michael, is this the tie you bought me? See? Does it look okay on me? Yeah, yeah good. See, the good thing about a white shirt, you can wear any color tie. Just like I did that, I had Mona help me with my collar because reaching up like that with my shoulder can be very painful. So God love her, just turn my collar over. And she always, when she does, she does that, and she always grabs right here and make make sure because she wants her she wants her hubby to look good, and uh, you know, I'm representing, you know the kingdom of God and so uh, but just like put on the Lord Jesus you know what I can't afford and you can't either to become carnal and at a time when you think carnality would be the last thing that people would uh, move in that direction we see it happening I want to hold to the testimony of Jesus. I want the testimony for Jesus to be the most important thing in my life. And yes, for 50 years, I have preached from this pulpit, maybe not this building, but it doesn't matter, all you need like the old TV show, Have Gun, Will Travel, Have Pulpit, doesn't matter. Whether here, Veterans Boulevard, Southgate Shopping Center, you know, Choya, Sunnyside High School, you know, 2950 East Irvington Road, Building 1, 2950 East Irvington Road, Building 2, is that for 50 years I've been preaching, Jesus is coming again. You know, I wish 
you know, if it was me, I'd say, Lord, how about today? How about today? You know what? Let's just, uh, but I'm not in control of those things. But I have sought to keep that urgency, that sense of urgency alive in my heart and alive in this congregation. And we see a world that is aligning itself with what Scripture says that in the last days Israel will be alone. But on our part, we have the curtain pulled back to see this is what's really at work. This battle has been going on for ages. And it originates and it is spelled out in Revelation chapter 12 and the course of action that you and I should take for our lives. I want you to bow your heads across this